Welcome to Piano Inspires podcast, celebrating pianists, teachers, and innovators as they share their inspiring stories about the transformative power of music. I'm Jennifer Snow. I'm the CEO and Executive Director of the Francis Clark Center, and I am thrilled to be speaking today with Karen Zorn. Karen is the president of the Longy School of Music. She's also a pianist, a dedicated educator, and an extraordinary leader in the arts. Karen, we're so honored to have you with us today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Well, we are just delighted to sort of talk to you today about you and uh, your background and all the things that have inspired you along the way and how you got to be the great Karen Zorn and make all these great changes in the world and all the amazing programs you have at Longy. So take us to the beginning. What are the early years of Karen Zorn? That's a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a rural area in Wisconsin, and so I sometimes say it's kind of a miracle that I became a classical musician because it wasn't at all a part of the culture in the neighborhood in the town that I grew up. But it was a part of the culture of my family in some ways, which is my mother was a wonderful singer. She was a teacher, not a music teacher, but an elementary school teacher. But somehow my parents both had the wherewithal to get us all enrolled in piano lessons. There were five of us in the family, so we all took piano lessons and we all studied another instrument. So we had kind of a part, parts of an orchestra and a band as well as people studying piano. Um, and what I can say that I remember is I just don't ever remember not playing the piano. We had a real old beater piano in our house, a beater really, <laughs> and I was always tinkering around on it. Even before I took any lessons, I, it was just, I was improvising and making up tunes and probably influenced by a sister of mine who's 10 years older, who is also a professional musician. And so then she went off to college and, um, I was studying with a local piano teacher and she sort of realized what she had learned and not learned from her first piano teacher, shall we say. Right. And so she talked to my parents and she's like, you know, we should really get Karen a better piano teacher. And so that's, yeah, I would say that was a real corner for me, was actually going to study with somebody who was just a great teacher, a great musician, very inspiring, and actually understood like what, you know, how to actually teach. I was 12, how to teach a 12 year old. She really knew how to do that. And that's a critical age. That would have been an age that you really, like we always talk about those forks in the road. Yeah. That because at that age, you ended up with a really inspiring teacher, all of a sudden music became a much bigger thing probably for you in terms of thinking of your future. Yeah, it really, it's really true, isn't it? That's such an important age. And I mean, obviously I have four siblings. They didn't all become uh, professional musicians, right? So Some of them took that other fork in the road, but for some reason, like this just was the thing that I really took to. And the other thing I would say, so this teacher's name was Carol Winborn. And um, the other thing I would say is that she, not only was she a great teacher, but she actually showed me this life she was living that I just didn't know existed. You know, she lived in this gorgeous Victorian house and there were 
beautiful grand pianos, you know, so think of my beater piano at home, like I had never played on anything like that before. She had original art in her house, you know, from artists she knew or not. But all of a sudden, like my brain started to pick up on this other kind of life that wasn't the rural life that I had grown up with, right? So I connected piano to her and who she was. And who she was was how she treated me, but it was also this incredibly beautiful environment that she had built, I think, very intentionally, right, for right. her to inspire her students. Right, and to surround you by beauty. Yeah. That is aspirational just by being around it. Yeah, and art. Art. Right? right. I think I think that was part of it. Like, I didn't really know about art, about visual art. I knew about music. So that just, you know, that got the wheels turning. And then, of course, I thought, well, why wouldn't I want to have this be my life? Or, like, I really think within a year or two, I started to think, I should be like Carol, you know? And I even, I remember I even started to imitate her handwriting a little bit. <laughs> I had so much respect for her. She was so, she just was so artistic, right. you know? And she was, she was just good at all those things, you know, whether it was decorating her house or teaching me or baking. She was a great cook. Um, and so, yeah, I remember at one point I looked back and I was like, oh, I actually have Carol's handwriting. Oh. So this is the kind of impact, right, that a piano teacher can have on a child. Right. The power the, of one. The power of one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we should also probably not underestimate how much that children pay attention to things, how much they pay attention to us, what we care about. Right. Because if they're having a good experience with us, like some of that, it's more than just the lesson that is the influence. And how it shaped you as a human being. Yeah. You know, that influence and then that exposure, that depth of um, awareness of beauty and art and the world beyond where you are living. Yeah, and I, I think I really did see it as that music did that for me. Of course, right. it was Carol, this wonderful human being, but it was, it was really, it was, it was music that opened that door for me. So way beyond just what music could mean, I saw this whole other world, and you know, she, uh, she would take me to concerts, and you know, I had never been to that kind of a professional concert when I was 12, you know. At that time, as you were coming through your teens, did you have peers that also played music? Or was it something that you sort of, was a unique experience you were having with your teacher and kind of you're on this, I don't want to say lone wolf yeah. trajectory a little bit at that time, but often for pianists, it's not like being in band or choir, it's different. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a grid, it's really a good question. Um, Sort of yes and no. So mm -hmm. yes, like I was the only person in my town who was taking that kind of serious piano lessons and where piano was starting to take up this kind of space in my life. Um, but I also went to a public school that actually had a really dynamite music teacher. And she was a bassoonist. And, and um, so my sister was like, well, you should, you know, when it came time in fifth grade to take another instrument she's like she's great bassoonist she should take bassoon and I had these big hands that you know I later grew into <laughs> I was 12 you know she looked what took one look at me and she was like yeah she can play the bassoon 
So I also played the bassoon and I played in the local band, you know, in the school. And I ended up playing in other kinds of ensembles. So I did get that experience of ensemble work, you know, which I I do think like I really loved that as well. So Mm -hmm. I didn't have to feel totally like the lone pianist. But and there were a couple of other kids in my junior high and high school who were pretty serious on their instruments. Like there was a kid who moved from Chicago and. I don't know, maybe my freshman year or something. And he was a great flautist. Like, he was great. So we played, you know, Handel sonatas and eventually Prokofiev sonatas, sonatas together. So that was kind of amazing, right? Yeah. So it did bring those two worlds together, my piano world and also my sort of high school, junior high world together. Yeah. And after that, you went into music in university and yep. you, know, you had this incredible pre-college experience and nurturing mentor. And... You are in university and you're studying piano. And what is the next fork in the road? Um, yeah, good question. Where's the next fork in the road? Um, I mean, one of the things that I did do, and this really was my piano teacher, Marvin Blickenstaff, who, when I was getting to the end of my time in college, and he was starting to help me think about what would come next, he, one day he said to me, he said, you know, I think you should either move to Germany or you should move to New York and maybe take a couple of years off of school and just study piano, and, you know, just live life. And I mean, that was great advice. So mm-hmm. I actually ended up moving to Germany and um, I had studied there a little bit when I was in college. I had I'd done the sort of, you know, junior year abroad in Germany. So it felt relatively comfortable and I found a piano teacher. I found a job. I worked at a dance school as the, you know, the pianist and had teachers, you know, sort of barking orders to me in German. And it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I learned German <laughs> even <drop>. better. <laughs> yeah. And but so I got a taste of that. You know, I was studying, but also working in the field. And I, I definitely decided like I did not want to be a dance accompanist for the rest of my life. It was a lot of hours on the bench. Right. So um, so that was a little like that was a maybe it wasn't a fork, but it was an expansion sort of of me like working professionally to some extent, but also living abroad and being a foreigner all at the same time, which really, you know, it expanded my worldview, I would say, in a big, you know, think about, again, my beginnings in a rural town. Right. And now I'm living, you know, I lived in Berlin and I lived in uh, Mannheim, you know. So that, that was important. And I was, of course, surrounded by great music, great orchestras. You know, I ended up playing with the, some of the sol- some of the members of the orchestra in Mannheim and in Heidelberg. I mean, that was that was a good development for me at that point. I would yeah, say for yeah. anyone. Yeah, I'm going to just take a little. We're going to jump around a little bit Please. because some of the things you're talking about now really connect deeply to the work you're currently doing with the United Nations. Uh, I wonder if you could share a little bit about it sort of shows where your global perspective, which started through your natural creativity in music, yeah. and then your curiosity and, and quest for learning things about the world and going to Europe and studying. Yeah. Um, how do you think that those formative experiences and working with musicians from other countries sort of inspired you in the work you're doing today? Yeah, it's... I mean, it's definitely in there as an ingredient. So I think you're right to pull it out. Um, 
I had this really incredible experience when I first went to Europe, which was that I didn't actually study in West Berlin. So this was 1983. Wow. I studied in East Berlin mm. and lived in East Berlin and in East Germany, right? So this is, again, it's the height of the Cold War. Right. And uh, East Germany, you know, if you think about West Germany at that time, it wasn't that different from America. Yes, of course, it's a different culture, right? But there was a lot, it had a lot in common. But I spent, you know, this six months in East Germany, and I met people who had never met an American. And I lived there and ate the food and sort of saw this completely different um, culture and government, right? Completely different. At that young age, that sort of formative time, yeah. you were living there. What you know, often we're in flow. We're living. We're young. Yeah. But when you think back to that time, what were the things that really stood out for you in a deep way that you experienced there? Yeah. Um, a, well, a couple of things. Um, one is, of course, you know, I had. You know, in America at the time, all we heard about was, you know, how awful the East Bloc countries were, right? And how awful Russia was, right? This was, that was the trope in America, right? So Russia bad, America good, this kind of thing. And then, you know, you land in a place that is, you know, the sort of partner country to Russia at the time. And, you know, your eyes sort of open wide and you were like, oh, first, the first thing is people are just people, right? Wherever you go, people are just people. And that sounds kind of quaint right now, but at the time in the height of the Cold War, that was very sort of eye-opening to me, right? So, you know, and again, connected to this UN project, right? The differences didn't really matter to me. You know, I could have, so the thing that would happen is that people could recognize that you weren't from East Germany pretty readily, and some people would walk up to you and say, where are you from? I'm from America. I've never met an American before. Wow. What's it like to live in America? Um, and so we'd have these like incredibly basic conversations that would then become quite philosophical. And, you know, I was, what, 22 years old or something, pretty young. So, you know, I could, and I could see like this communist system had its pluses and it's, it had its minuses. So instead of having that painted for me, I actually got to see it for myself and realize that you know, at an early age, what you hear on the news is just a story. It's not necessarily the story, right? Um, but, yeah, I mean, I guess it was just having, like, what an incredibly broadening experience. Um, and really kind of singular, right? Because, of course, East Germany doesn't exist anymore, right? right? So I consider myself very lucky that I got to go to this place that existed for a while. The Berlin Wall was up for a few years, you know, right. and I happened to live there for a while when it was up, um, and sort and see um, the impact it had, you know, on families and on people, and um, you know. So when I would, I, I made a lot of friends. Some of those people are still my friends to this day, and to hear them talk about how, you know, they had uh, they were separated from their families right. for all those years, right? Like how incredible is that and it still happens and it's and of course it's still happening right. right like that was the focus at the time and now we have all these other conflicts in the world that are affecting all kinds of other people it's amazing when we talk about that 
that you actually were at that young age a cultural ambassador. Maybe which is That's a real true. passion That's... in your work right now. Yeah, yeah. And a real yeah. sort of you're driving that um, through your work at Longi, through the programs and through partnerships. After you had that deep cultural experience, returned to the U.S. and built a family life, and you were an active teacher yeah. and in your community. Yeah. And so that's another fork in the road. Yeah, it, I mean, it really is. So I, um, the fork really was started to happen when I moved to Minneapolis. So I'd gone to graduate school, I got married, and it was time for my husband to go to graduate school, which he wanted to do at the University of Minnesota. He's a theater director. And so I, I needed to get a job. <laughs> like I, I needed a job that paid money, right? And it, so I did a number of things, you know, that whether it was waiting tables or doing temp jobs or whatnot, but I landed this job at a place called the McPhail Center for the Arts. Of course. And that's, that place changed my life. First of all, I, had, I didn't even know that there were community music schools. I, I just didn't know. I didn't know they existed. I thought you taught at a university or at a music shop or you had your own studio. But I didn't know there was this sort of in-between land where you could be a studio teacher and also have a community. Right. And because I had had my own private studio when I was in graduate school and afterward, and I found it lonely. You know, I found in some ways it didn't actually work for my personality. I loved my students and I loved families. But I really felt lonely because it turns out I'm a very social person. Yes. Yeah. And I want to be around other colleagues, you know, and that's when things start to happen for me. I'm, I'm not really a soloist, you know, as a person. I'm much more of a chamber musician. And it's like talking to people and hearing what they have to say. And then my brain goes, oh, we could do this, that, and the other. So McPhail was like this just heaven for me. And... But what happened to me there was, I mean, one thing I would like to share is like, I just decided I would teach any kid that needed teaching because as I said earlier, like I needed to make a living, right? <laughs> and I was not going to make a living if I was like sort of picky or choosy about who I was teaching, right? right. So, um, and by the way, I was the last hired teacher, which also kind of meant that you had to take every kid who walked in the door. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so part of it I wasn't crazy about. But then at some point I had this real epiphany where I realized, oh, like if I teach all of these kids the way I was taught to teach or the way that I was taught, that wasn't going to work for all of them. It would work for some of them, but it wouldn't work for all of them. And that really was like my beginning stages. I didn't have words for it. I'm not sure we had words for it then for what I would call culturally responsive teaching. Right. Yeah, so it was centered. totally student-centered. Right. I was teaching all these teenage boys who had quit piano because they found it was boring, you know? And then of course they're a teenager and they're like, wait, I like music, so can I get some piano lessons? They had no interest in, like there was no way to teach them that sort of method book, whatever, right? Classically sort of- uh, Rigor. Yeah. There was just, that was not the way to do it. Right. So I just, I would just, I finally figured out one day, maybe out of frustration and, and also like just being practical, I have to retain these students because, <laughs> no, because I need to make a living. Right. right? You need to be successful. Yeah. So, so it was like a practical motivation that I think led me to this 
you know, I just asked them, what are you listening to? What kind of music? Bring in a recording. It was cassette tapes at the time. And then I just basically taught them how to make their own arrangements of pop and rock tunes. Awesome. Yeah. And I really learned how to like do that in a very sequential way. And they were super satisfied and they could play stuff for their friends. And then what would happen eventually is I'd be like, you know, there's this composer named Bach and he wrote this prelude that sounds a lot like this piece that right. let me play it for you. And so the idea was start where they are. That's right. Start with what they care about and then build a bridge that actually broadens their life. And that is, I mean, that's incredible. That's incredibly meaningful work to do as and, a teacher. But that's also the work you do now as a leader. I know, it's that interesting. That description you just gave of your teaching is how you lead. Interesting. And as you've sort of, you know, dedicated your life now to leadership through McPhail and now at Longy. How do you connect those those parts of yourself? I mean, you know, you lead as with the heart of an educator. Yeah. And the work you're doing at Longy stands out. There is no other school that's doing what you're doing. That's why it drew the attention of the UN. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, how Longy School and the UN connected. Yeah. No, I'd be happy. I'd be happy to do that. I'd, I would say that, yes, I definitely at my core am an educator. And I lead from that place. And, you know, I love curriculum. I love to think about how it actually works. <clears throat> and I know that not every leader is going to be that kind of person, you know. Most aren't. Yeah, right? it's most maybe that's aren't true. Really, and if they come from education, they may not be motivated by people-centered experience. Yeah. Or student-centered learning or student-centered experiences. Yeah. No, I think I think that's right. I just don't know... You know, I, I didn't get an MBA, right? I didn't go to leadership school. So for me, becoming a leader just kind of grew out of my, who I was as a teacher, just very naturally. And I, st I still think that that's exactly how I think about things. Um, yeah. So then anytime there's a possibility of a partnership, to me, that is that sort of chamber music, right. the doing things together that you can't do alone, that also comes, I think, out of, my sort of educational philosophy. So, yeah, when the, the UN, you know, came uh, to us to say that they were looking for a conservatory that they could partner with, and actually unbeknownst to us, and I didn't, um, I haven't really shared this that much, they'd been looking for a while. Wow. Yeah, so it wasn't like they had this idea of doing cultural diplomacy and working with a conservatory, and they came immediately to us. They actually had talked to quite a lot of other conservatories, which I learned later. And when they started to describe what they were looking for in a conservatory, which was a conservatory that really could, would be able to work globally right. and wouldn't be centric to Western music necessarily, right, mm -hmm. or Western way of thinking um, or an American way of thinking, um, they... And they would describe the kinds of places they wanted to go and the places they would want to educate. Um, there were other conservatories that were will, willing to build that sort of program, um, but they would have to build it. They weren't already doing it. So then eventually, through their own network, they found their way to Longy, and they saw that we were, in a lot of ways, we were already doing it. We'd already built this music ed program that could really work 
essentially for any teacher in any kind of classroom. Which is what you were talking about from those early years at McPhail, yeah. of thinking about the, the story of the student yeah. and meeting them where they are. Yeah. And doing that at scale in higher education at Bonji with that sort of student-centered heart and, and seeing the person, not just the products or the context yeah. that most higher ed is sort of focused on. Um, would you speak a little bit about that incredible program that probably also drew the UN to you, um, which is your practitioner's program? I know that it is just such profound work and really transformed your students at Longy, but also transformed the profession. And it was incredible when you launched that. Yeah. So you mean the music as a healing art yes. and using music as, as therapy in essence. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's, it's so interesting running a school like Longy with this social mission, you know, preparing musicians to make a difference in the world and, you know, some of those paths are really obvious, right? Becoming a teacher, I think, you know, or working in communities um, and really um, looking for need in communities that can be met by music. You, those, you know, I sort of imagined from the first day at Longy. Um, but one of the things I love about my job is that that's always a little bit in my head. Like, what are the other possibilities? What are the other things that are out there that I don't already know about? And I had never heard of uh, this, I, you know, this profession, certified music practitioner. I'd never heard of it. I was the president for five years or something. And I just, um, I just ran into it by accident, sitting on a panel for a foundation that was giving away money. And some of the money was going to um, orchestras that were actually training their players to become music practitioners mm -hmm. to connect with the community, right? Right. And I was like, what is this thing? The future. Yeah, <laughs> right? Well, the, the, it is our current, but it is the training aspect is really where musicians are. They find themselves, they just need to be educated and supported so that they can yeah. connect. Yeah, they just have to. Like, you know, being a music practitioner isn't going into an old folks home and playing a recital. That's yeah. wonderful and it's great to do. What a music practitioner actually does is it's a person who's really highly skilled at paying attention to a patient, you know, and that can be in uh, NICU or it can be in a hospice care or anything in between um, and noticing things about what's going on for them physically. So it's a kind of training that takes a musician who is probably already pretty good at noticing things, especially, I think, I'm going to harp on chamber music, but especially yes. they make music with other people. Right. And taking those skills that already exist and just really heightening them so that they start to pay attention to a person's breathing or their posture or is there pain that you can see. And then after noticing that, finding music that can actually go into that space with them. And what we never notice as human beings is that when we're around each other, we, um, and, and you're having a good conversation like right now, right. you sort of start to whatever, you, however you want to call it, vibe with each other. Yeah. And probably if pe people came and looked at our vitals, they'd probably find like our vital signs are kind of the same. This thing, it's, it's a technical term, it's called entrainment. Ah. And, and that's what a musician can actually do, is pick up on the vibes of somebody who needs comfort and then bring music into play to either speed them up 
or slow them down. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that I think is a good example that most people understand is, you know, when someone tells you to relax, like if someone says, relax, Jennifer, doesn't make you feel like relaxing, right? Probably right. for me, it makes me more tense. Correct. And, and so if you are working with a patient and you're a musician and, and maybe they are anxious, right? The nurse says, listen, they have a lot of problems with anxiety and they have a rapid heart, heart rate. What you don't do is play relaxing music for them. As a music practitioner, it makes it worse. What you do is actually you notice their breathing rate and their heart rate, and you match it. And then they can train with you. And then over the session, you bring the tempo down, and you can take the vital signs before and after, and it's night and day. That's one of the things that music can do and a right. musician can do and learn how to do. So for me, when I realized that, and I'm really skating on the surface of this. There's a lot more to know. When I realized that, I was like, that's like a perfect, first of all, musicians need that in their lives. They need to be able to have that kind of exchange and actually really feel, especially if somebody's feeling cynical. I'm like, talk about get a musician out of their cynical right. Um, mood, right? But do this kind of work. But of course, the world needs this. Absolutely. And more than so, ever. More than ever. And there's so ever. much need, right? And if we look into the future, have you said, this is the future, right? Right. It's music and healthcare. Yes. It's musicians as um, a prescription. That's right. Social prescribing. Yeah. Uh, I, I was at a conference on music and health, and it was fascinating to sort of start thinking about, you're already ahead of so many, like I sat in that conference and thought, the medical profession is ready for us. And so we have to get ready. And we have to start training more musicians. We have to provide opportunities for them to gain experiences and understanding so that the power that we wield as musicians um, can be directed effectively yeah. in lots of different scenarios. It's, again, meeting people where they are. This is your theme. Yes, it is. This is yeah, your I vibrational thread. Yes. yes. Meet people where they are. Yeah. Um, You've been a leader at Longy now for 16 years? Yes. Wow. <laughs> and you've accomplished so much. It's incredibly impressive, and your level of innovation and creativity just keeps going forward. What's your future vision? Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting, right, when you take a job and you um, have a good feeling about it, but you, you have no idea, like, how long will this be meaningful for me or how long will I be meaningful to the institution, right? Because that's right. the other question. Um, and so I suppose sometimes I ask the question like, well, one of these days launch is going to need a new leader. <laughs> we're like, oh, there she goes again, <laughs> one more innovation. And I do, I know, I know this about myself that I am not a maintenance person. You know, I'm not the maintenance leader that's like a few tweaks over here and a little tweak over there. Yes, that has to happen, but that's not actually what makes my soul sing. So it really, what makes my soul sing is really thinking about what do musicians who really want to make a life in music need, and how can we Longy or other places provide that so they're ready and they can be successful. So, you know, I still feel like I've got a few, like I really want to see this um, cultural diplomacy program with the UN really have a good lift. You know, because I, I think there's so much potential there. I mean, not just for Longy, but for musicians. Right. It's yeah. an incredible program. Yeah. And the, acts, the kind of access that that could create for 
people who don't have access, for me, again, that's very much to my values, and I think to Lanji's values, access. You know, there are lots of musicians who have resources, young musicians, they're fine. We don't need to worry about them. What about all those incredible could-be musicians who just don't have the resources but could actually really make a difference? That's really where our focus is. And I, it's hard for me to imagine leaving that kind of focus with Lanji. So how, you, how we end up peeling the layers of that in the future, to be honest, I'm not quite sure. You know, I, I feel like we've got the music as a healing art and we've got the cultural diplomacy program. Those really need some extra care for a few years here. I, the way I operate, which isn't, you know, anything anyone should really emulate is, <laughs> I mean it, like they're, you know, people who have like a five-year plan or a three-year plan and they always know where they're going and that, that's where the vision, I'm really not that person. I, I'm much more intuitive. I go to a lot of theater. I go to museums. I read articles. I never quite know where, you know, where that next idea is. I can't describe to you where the next idea comes from. Um, sometimes it comes from the students at Longy. They some, say something in a meeting right. with me, and I'm like, what? Aha. Oh, God. <laughs> Why? I mean, often, right? The students, right. the alumni, you know, asking alumni, what didn't you get when you were at Longy right. that now that you've been out for 10 years or five years, you wish you had learned? Like for me, that's one of the most important questions that I ask over and over. And that's where sometimes that's a piece of heading toward a vision for a next uh, layer of work. That makes sense. It does. And it's extremely exciting. And it resonates with me also. I had a feeling. Yes. The, <laughs> that creative sort of incubation and yeah. curiosity and gathering and goes through a distillation process for you that comes to responding to somebody else. Yeah. That somebody brings something up and you're like, yeah, why aren't we doing that? Yeah. So let's do it. Exactly. Can I sort of hook onto that with leadership? Yeah. Around your leadership style, which is coming through and how you talk about leadership and how you talk about your work. As a leader and as a visionary leader, what are some of the qualities in this day and age that you think are really essential for successful leadership? Because you can come up with great ideas and respond to people and say, oh, yeah, we'll do that. But it takes a team. It takes everybody to do that. And how do you approach leadership? How do you approach leading your entire community forward yeah. in all these really exciting initiatives? Yeah. Um, well, I think you have to live in the real world. Let me say that. Can I say that again? Yes. I think you have to live in the real world. And I think that that really can inform how you see things, right? So I think you have to be careful of being sort of that person in the office behind the closed door um, who is the last person to hear <laughs> about something. But I also mean you have to live in the real world and go to things and be paying attention to what other people are doing. And I think often leaders um, look to their own profession for, for inspiration. And I found one of my keys is to get outside of my profession to look right. for inspiration. And I, you know, I think that happens all the time, right? You have an uh, aha sort of experience, not when you're at a recital, but when you are at a science forum or something and you think, wait a minute, 
Right. So I think, so that's a part of it is just like really being out in the world and paying attention. And that's of course about being curious. Um, I think that uh, obviously leaders need to be great listeners and, and actually pay attention to the people around them or other people. Right. But I think, um, you know, we need, we need to be like virtuoso noticers <laughs> I would say, you know, there's your book title. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're just noticing like the things maybe that can't even be put into words. Right. Or noticing a person who's, you know, maybe in the wrong job, but super talented. Right. Or is in a job, but has way more potential. Um, so I think for me, like when I feel like I've got the team around me is how I think about it. And, you know, I don't know if this is interesting or not, but about 10 years ago, I had this epiphany because I had an office and in my office, I had a desk and I had a computer and I had a conference table. And so we were always sitting, you know, like people would be sitting next to my desk, you know, under the desk, you know, or we're sitting at this table and it's kind of uncomfortable. And I was like, you know, I'm much more productive when I'm sitting in my living room. So I just turned my office into a living room. Beautiful. And that's what it looks like. It looks like a living room. And, and, and so then you don't feel like people say, how can you deal with all these meetings? And I'm like, I just don't think of them like meetings isn't a negative connotation for me. We're getting together. There's an agenda or there's not an agenda. And we're trying to make forward motion happen. Right. And it's creative, interesting people like, again, sometimes people will say to me, like, don't, don't you miss being a performing artist? And you know, being an administrator is not, you know, creative. And I'm like, this is the most creative job I've ever had in my life. Yes. I feel like I'm firing on all cylinders all the time. And sometimes it's coming from me, but a lot of times it's not. It's coming from somebody else. But you have to notice. You know, I, I have this principle and I tell it to everybody that I work with. A good idea can come from anywhere. That's right. Anywhere. Um, and often the good idea is not going to come from the person whose job it is to solve the problem, right? Because they're too close to it or it's just too fraught. It's somebody who's got a little bit of distance who can say like, well, what if we did this thing that we've never done before? You know? hmm. That also takes courage and belief yeah, and dreaming. Yes. And one of the things I, I find so it's so compelling talking to you about all these things. Under all of this is this dreaming aspect and pursuit of beauty. You talk about turning your office into a living room, which reflects what it was like at 12 when you went to your teacher's beautiful home and the beauty that was around you made you feel aspired to new things and new heights. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. I never thought about that. <laughs> it is. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely am a dreamer. I mean, I'm also a doer, but I am definitely a, a dreamer. And I am definitely a person who can, I visualize things. I, you know, without having seen them, I think I can visualize things, which I think people who dream yeah. visualize, right? And that, I think that, like, that is that creative sort of spark. It is. For me, is being able to start to imagine that either things could be different or things could be better or something could be built that doesn't exist. That's exciting to me. 
fixing things, you know, it, right. that has to be done. I, I'm not, I don't mean to minimize it, but that's not my strength. Right. And look at what you've created as a result of that dreaming and doing and serving others. It's really extraordinary. Have you, uh, when you think now with all the young artists you're working with and all the different programs you're creating, we have a saying, piano inspires. And you've spoken a lot about how piano inspired your life and inspired yeah. your work. We love to ask you, piano inspires, to sort of finish that sentence for us. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I really, for me, I think piano really did inspire leadership in me that I would never have guessed was there. No, I just, I wouldn't, I just wouldn't have, you know, and didn't really for a long period of time. But I, I really do think like, it's so important what piano teachers do because they pay attention to students and they notice things and they see the potential and the possibility. Um, you know, for some kids, that piano teacher is the only adult other than their parents who's really paying attention to them and saying and showing them you have potential. And I think, of course, that's what happened for me. I mean, I had wonderful parents. I really did. Um, and who just were like, go, go, do your thing. And by the way, education is the thing that's going to open the door for your life. They just believed in that. How lucky, right? Yes. But then I had these piano teachers who also were in my corner all along the way, who were also saying, like, go, you can do, you can do whatever you want, and you can be a fabulous pianist. You already are. We already believe in you, right? So then you start to feel like you can jump off that cliff. I think that's what a piano teacher inspires. I honestly think, I mean, piano teachers inspire students to believe in themselves. My piano teachers definitely did that. And that, I mean, that's, a, that's such a gift. It is. It's beautiful. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Listening to you talk about your life, I think about that small rural town you mentioned at the beginning that you grew up in and the way that you looked out into the world and those different forks in the road where you always sort of took that expanding view and that expanding approach to how you live your life that sort of iterative process, creative process yeah. in your own life that's really defined your leadership style. It's interesting, right? Like, where does that come from? Because I think it is true. If I look back now, I've lived enough life. I can do that. <laughs> um, I've never been the person who takes the safe choice, including in my current job. Yeah. Well, that's and, who and, you are. Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah. Yeah, and that's not for everybody, but I feel lucky that that emerged from me, you know, from wherever that comes from, this idea of, you know, um, taking risks that are worth it to yes. change things or make things. And make them better. That's what I love about everything you're doing. Thank you. Karen, thank you for spending this time with us. We are so grateful. We are honored to host you on this podcast. We look forward to a follow-up. I know many people will be inspired by this conversation. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you. 
The Francis Clark Center is a not-for-profit educational organization that serves the advancement of piano teaching, learning, and performing. Divisions include Piano Magazine, Piano Inspires Kids, Journal for Piano Research, National Conference on Keyboard Pedagogy, The New School for Music Study, Piano Education Press, International Online Teacher Education, and Piano Inspires Online Community Hub. Please visit us at pianoinspires.com to learn more about our impactful work and inspiring community.